I'm a little bit messed up right now. I was just on the floor over there weeping. Because to sing those lyrics, I know what it means. I will make room for you to do whatever you want to. That's a scary thing to pray. I want to tell you what happened to me. By the way, this is not supposed to be my introduction. The Lord's just telling me, I got, I got to tell you what happened to me on Thursday. I, I shared with you guys the last few weeks I've been dealing with a herniated disc. It's exceptionally painful. There, I have to sleep on a floor on a, on a futon mattress. It's the only way I can get any kind of sleep. And I woke up on Thursday morning, and I tried to get up out of bed, and it was shooting pain so bad I, I couldn't even get up. I'm on the floor, and I'm trying to get up, and every time I try to move, it just starts shooting pain. I collapse back to the floor. Room is dark. I get up earlier, and I don't know what to do. I finally, after about 45 seconds, I'm able to stand up, and it is excruciating, and I'm walking around. In that morning, I, I, I can't sit. I haven't been able to sit for a month and a half. I can't, I, I can't lie down. It hurts so bad. Now I can't stand, and I can't walk, and I'm walking around my house trying so bad in incredible pain going, God, what do I do? I can't, I can't do anything, God. Heal me, God, heal me. Two hours, I'm crying out to God and I'm weeping because I'm in so much pain. Comes in a moment where I'm journaling and I, get, I, I can't stand that long. And when I journal, I saw I was, I'm on my bedside and I'm just kneeling there on the bedside. And I have my journal out and I'm writing. And I feel like the Lord just say to me, I want you to write something. If I'm really in control, I want you to write don't take away the pain until I learn every lesson you want me to learn, God. And I'm there, and I'm just begging him to take away the pain. I'm like, I don't want to write it, God. I don't want to write it. And my hand is trembling because the pain is so bad. And he's saying, do you trust me? So I wrote my hand trembling, God. Don't take away the pain until I've learned everything I'm supposed to learn. That's what it means to say, I'll make room for you to do whatever you want to. If it means my body is in pain, do whatever you want to. If it means you got to take away something from me that I love, God, do whatever you want to. Because your way is better. Your way is better. I hope you know what you just sang to the Lord. You don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid because God is good. But there are going to be times I don't understand what he's doing. And I have to, by faith, be willing to say, God, I trust you. Thank you. I trust my God. He's good. I prayed that prayer. Thursday was a very hard day. I woke up on Friday and it was like I'd had surgery already. I, I, I can't even explain it other than maybe there's a lot of pain meds in my body. <laughs> Thursday, uh, Thursday was one of the worst days of my life. Friday was exceptionally better. Saturday was so much better than Thursday. Today has been so much better than Thursday. Praise God. And I get to bring the word. And by God's grace... Lord willing, I'll have a surgery scheduled where they'll be able to, to do something about the pain. I'm, I'm excited about that in a couple of weeks. Minimally invasive. I'll get surgery on Friday. Lord willing, be preaching on Sunday. But it was that moment of faith, of being willing to say, God, you're in control. Can I be honest with you? 
I don't think I'm the only one in this room who struggles with control. To really say to God, do whatever you want to do. What a move of faith, God, to God to say to do whatever you want to. I just don't think you and I are good at giving God control. And I think God wants to deal with that today. Let me tell you why. Our inability to give God control causes all of our problems. I don't know if you know this or not, but this whole room is filled with a bunch of control freaks. Every one of us. We think we're not because we have in our mind what a control freak looks like. Let me tell you, there are all kinds of passive ways to be controlling. And we are filled to the brim with it. And if we would just stop and think about the ways that we passively trying to control, icing people out, lying, manipulating, playing the victim, even the pursuit of pleasure, the addictions that we have are all part of us trying to control how we feel. People pleasing is one of the most controlling things we can do. How can that be controlling? I'm trying so hard to control the fact that I want you to like me. We're driven by the desire of, to have control to fight for perception, to fight for people to like us, to fight to look successful. And we need to stop and realize our tendencies to control, that's what hurts the people that we love. That's what causes all the things that we regret. It's our desire to control. You do realize that desire to control is the original sin, right? You go to the garden, Adam and Eve, there they are. You wanna know what caused them to eat the fruit they weren't supposed to? They didn't like the fact that God was telling them they can't have this fruit that will make them like God. I mean, they were all right until the serpent came up and said, don't you realize he's trying to control you? And they said, well, I don't want him to control me. I'm going to take it for myself. That's the original sin. It's the desire to control that caused Adam and Eve to eat the fruit. And it's the desire to control that caused the Jews to try to kill the very Messiah that came to save them. I want us to go to Luke 20. I want you to open your Bible. This is just a continuation of, of last week. Those of you who didn't hear last week, I encourage you, go back Listen to the sermon because it sets up. We're on a journey all the way to Easter, and you really need to have the, the full picture. The, the wrestling with, is Jesus really the king? So last week I explained that he came in, triumphal entry, riding on a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. He's declaring to be king. And his job was to make everybody choose, pe put people to the polls. You either receive me as king or you think I'm crazy and you reject me. There's no in-between. And then at the very end, the biggest act to show himself as king, he walks into the temple, boom, starts flipping tables, and everybody goes wild. And they're at the polls. What happens in the first couple of verses of chapter 20 is people respond, people's response, the religious leader's response to Jesus flipping tables. And you're going to realize really quickly it's all about control. Let's read it. Luke 20, verse 1. It says, One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. Two times, that's the question. Where did you get this authority? Who do you think you are acting like you're the authority? You see, here's what was going on. Jesus comes in riding on a donkey, flipping tables, and he's basically going, listen, I'm the new sheriff in town. And the, the leader said, this town doesn't need a new sheriff. They've already got one. We're the sheriff in this town. It was a, it was a, a battle against who's going to have control. And they don't like this, this guy, Jesus. I'm going to tell you why they don't like Jesus trying to take control. This dude was a hillbilly from Galilee who was completely uneducated, some rogue rabbi who's coming into Jerusalem acting like he owns the place. And here are the high and mighty. These are the, the high priests, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees. These are the best of the best. And they're going, who do you think you are? By the way, they were sick and tired of everybody talking about Jesus' authority. They'd seen it all through the book of Luke, all the journey, everybody talking about, check out the authority this guy has. 
We're going to go really quickly through a few verses. I want you to go, though, in the, the book of Luke. I want you to go to Luke chapter 4. I want you to find verse 32. In this verse, he's just started teaching, and you're going to see how wowed everybody is by his teaching. It says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Holy cow, this guy, when he teaches, he's got authority. He's in control of his words and the people who listen. And then he casts out an unclean spirit, and now they're amazed at the next part. Not only does he possess authority with the word, listen to what it says in verse 36. It says, and they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. They, they see now that brother has got power. He's got authority over his words, over the unclean spirits. If you were to go over to uh, chapter 7, I'm not going to tell, so I won't have enough time for it, but there's a story of a centurion soldier. Here, here's a Roman, not even Jewish, and he says, he looks at Jesus and says, I see authority in that man. And he does something unthinkable. At this point, Jesus is only healed up close, like he has to touch somebody to heal him. But this centurion, this Roman dude says, Jesus, I know what authority looks like. He says, I'm a soldier. I got people that tell me what to do and I do it. I got people under me. I tell them what to do and they do it. I know what authority is and I see it in you. You just, just say the word. You don't have to go to my house. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. I know what kind of authority you have. And sure enough, Jesus says it. And the, the servant is healed. He's got authority in word, authority in the spiritual realm, authority on earth to heal. And they're all amazed at this. Man, this man's got so much authority. And they were all good until he got to the fourth one. He had authority over the forgiveness of sins of humanity. And on that one, they start bucking against him. I, I want you to flip over to Luke chapter 5. Very well-known story of when there's a paralytic, they're trying to take to Jesus, they have to open up the roof to let him down. I want you to listen to the back and forth of this story. Luke chapter 5, verse 18. It says, And behold, some of the men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, now stop there for a moment. I want you to understand why they were so ticked off. They, they were okay with Jesus having authority in his word. I mean, kind of, sort of. They were okay with Jesus having authority over the unclean spirits, having authority to heal. But the authority to forgive sins was exceptionally dangerous for the institution, for the religious leaders. I don't know why I never thought of this before until I was studying this passage, but you realize if Jesus can forgive sins, then the whole temple sacrificial system is no longer needed. He could destroy the entire religious system if he has the ability to forgive sins. Because before this, if you want your sins forgiven, you got to go to Jerusalem, you got to spend your money in Jerusalem, you got to buy an animal, a goat, or a cow, or a pigeon, you got to spend your money on that, you got to have a priest who can actually take it and sacrifice it and sprinkle blood on you, and only then would you be forgiven. The whole system is based on that. And now I hear this rogue rabbi over here is going, no, no, actually, you don't need all that. I can forgive your sins. And they're going, you slow down over here. Who do you think you are? I love the way Jesus responds, though. In verse 22, it says, When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say to you, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And then it just says the crowd went bonkers because they could see right here. He says, I want you to know I've got authority to forgive sins. Let me show you. Stand up. And the guy stands up and everybody knew that brother's got authority. He was stirring the hearts all over Galilee. People were believing him. But you see, that's, that's in Galilee. But when we go back over to Luke chapter 20, he's not in Galilee anymore. He's in Jerusalem. Now, he had authority over there in Galilee, but let me tell you about Galilee. The, the religious leaders in Galilee, that's like a junior high baseball team. Jerusalem is the major leagues. I mean, these are the best of the best. These are the guys who were trained by the, the greatest rabbis. These weren't just priests. These were the chief priests and the high priests. These weren't just rulers. These were the Sanhedrin who controlled the entire nation. These were the people in Jerusalem, and they're going, I don't, I, maybe you were effective in, in Galilee, but this ain't hillbilly Galilee. This is Jerusalem. What authority do you have to come over here and tell us what to do? What authority? And it says back in verse 1 that he was preaching the gospel. He wasn't just teaching. He was preaching the gospel. You know what the gospel is? The gospel is a message that your sins are forgiven by Jesus and not by a sacrificial system. He's over there in Jerusalem spreading this stuff that you don't need right by the temple. You don't need all this anymore. I'm the way to have forgiveness of sins. And those religious leaders are going buck wild because they know he's trying to destroy their whole system and institution. What authority do you have, they ask him. Let me go ahead and tell you, that was a trick question. Because they knew when they asked him that question, whatever he answered, they had him. If he said, I do it by earthly authority, then the Sanhedrin would stand up and say, no, no, we're the authority in the nation of Israel. Get out of here. They would completely discredit him like that if he said it was earthly authority. On the other side, if he said, I have divine authority, then the, the high priest himself would stand up and say, blasphemer, you don't have that kind of authority. I'm the authority before Almighty God. Either way, he was done, discredited, and they knew they had him trapped. Except Jesus, he's one smart cracker. I want you to see what he says in verses 3 through 8. Verse 3, he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Ooh, that brother is smart. They asked him a question that they knew they could trap him on. He asked them a question he knows he can trap them on. You see, here, here's the thing about John. John had already been martyred some two or three years before this moment. But it was like when John was martyred, his testimony got even bigger. He got even more famous. Everybody was talking about John. And they were gathered together in Jerusalem at Passover. And John had been preaching a new kingdom with a Messiah. And they were so hungry for a new kingdom, for Rome to be kicked out and Israel to rise up. Everybody was talking about John. And those religious leaders knew that if they said anything to discredit John, they would be stoned. But if they said, no, we believe in John, John's message aligned with Jesus' message. And he would say, well, why didn't you believe him and why don't you believe me? Jesus knew he had him trapped. And then they said, we don't know. We give up. And Jesus said, well, I'm not telling you either. Point to Jesus at that moment. But here's what's so interesting. With that one statement, Jesus actually proves to them they have no authority. Did you notice 
what was driving them? You want to know what was really in control? Fear. They said, well, we, we really don't believe in John, but if we say we don't believe in him, then they're going to stone us. They're going to kill us. And though they have an opinion, they won't declare it because they're afraid of the crowds. Fear is controlling them. And Jesus proves it with one simple question. Now, at that moment, he could have gotten the mic and dropped it and said, peace, walked off, won the day. Everybody would have been shocked. Here's what I love about Jesus, though. Jesus decides, I got one more lesson to teach you. He's going to drive the knife in a little bit deeper and show them who really has authority. So he tells a parable. We're going to go through it quickly, but it is all about Jesus proving he's got authority. Moving on, verse 9. It says, and he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. Okay, now I want to pause there just for a moment because I want to make sure you understand that this is an allegory and everything is representative of something else. So until you understand all the elements, you won't understand the point Jesus is about to make. So let me start from the beginning. Parable about a vineyard and there's an owner. That owner is Yahweh God. It's the Father. As we're talking about, God has a vineyard. The vineyard is representative of the nation of Israel. There's a, a, a verse I'll get to in just a moment in Isaiah, and it talks about how the nation of Israel, the house of Israel, is the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, and it says it clearly. Now, what's so interesting, you've got to remember, Jesus is standing at the temple. He's right in front of it, and he's preaching this message there in Jerusalem. Right behind him is the entrance to the temple. Now, you may not know this, but huge emblazoned on the top of the entrance of the temple is this massive golden vine representing a vineyard with a huge cluster of grapes. And that represented the nation of Israel. So he's saying there was a vineyard, and right behind him is this golden vine with grapes on it, represented the nation of Israel. Everyone would have known he was talking about the nation of Israel, and the owner would be the father, Yahweh God. Then he says there, there are these tenants. Now the tenants represent the prophets that God sent. I'm excuse me, the, the servants represent the prophets. The tenants are the religious leaders. They're the ones who are called to take care of the vineyard and produce fruit. So all the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, the Sanhedrin, all these people, these are the tenants. They're in charge of the vineyard, take care of it, give it fruit, but they don't do it. So God sends servants. The servants are the prophets who come. Now notice that there's three servants. That's, there's a reason for that. There were three waves of prophets that came. There was a first wave really focused on the nation of Israel. They didn't listen to him, and then the nation of Israel got destroyed in 722 by Assyria. Then there's a second wave of prophets speaking to the nation of Judah in the south, where Jerusalem was, and they totally didn't listen to those prophets, beat them up, roughed them up, and then ultimately Judah was destroyed in 586 B.C. by Babylon. Then you have a third wave of prophets during the exile, calling out to them, telling them to return to God, and ultimately they rejected them as well. Three prophets representing the three waves that came, that's with the three servants, and they got roughed up and beat up and rejected. It is very clear that Jesus is talking about them. And then Jesus gets to the last part, and this is where the real zinger comes. Verse 13. It says, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
when they heard this, they said, surely not. Okay, now, now stop there again. So it says the owner sent his own son, his beloved son, to the vineyard. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I don't know if you've read this story before. I've always struggled with that decision of the owner because it just doesn't seem smart. Like he's just sent three servants, and they got beat up. They, they got just roughed up. and I mean, He's sending them to the hood. Like his vineyard is the hood. And he keeps on sending servants, and they keep getting beat up and cast out. Let me go ahead and tell you, I got one son. The last thing I would do is send my son to the hood when I know he's going to get beat up and cast out. And yet this owner says, I know what I'll do. I'll send my beloved son to the same place where all my servants have been beat up and cast out. And you read it going like, that's the dumbest thing ever. And then the Lord reminded me as I was studying this passage, this isn't about strategy of how to take care of a vineyard. That wasn't the point of this parable. It was about authority. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, you tenants think that you can kill the son and get all the vineyard for yourself. But the real one who has authority is the beloved son. And he uses the term beloved son because of what happened back in Luke chapter 3 when the voice from heaven said, behold my beloved son, listen to him. He, he, he's already been called the beloved son. He, he is declaring himself to be the beloved son. He says, you guys are going to kill me he says, he's going to drag him outside of the vineyard and kill him. You guys are going to drag me outside of Jerusalem, and you're going to kill me because you think that you can claim what belongs to God because you think you're the authority. Let me tell you what's going to happen. You're all going to be destroyed, and God's going to give this vineyard to others. I'm the one with authority, he's saying. I'm the son, and you're all going to get what you deserve. That's why they respond, there's no way that's going to happen. There's no way what you say could come true, that God would rip it away from us and give it to others, which is why Jesus responds the way he does in the last two verses. I want to finish up the passage. Verse 17, but he looked directly at, he's making eye contact at this moment, and he said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. He says, I want to go ahead and tell you how this is going to work. You guys are going to reject me, and you're going to cast me out. And you're going to think that you're going to get the inheritance, but actually God's going to take me rejected, and he's going to build a whole new building on it. And what you've got to understand is a cornerstone. I don't know if you've ever seen a cornerstone. But in biblical times, when you built a building, the foundation wasn't like a cement block and you built on top of it. You would have one massive stone in a corner, and then everything else would be built off of that plumb against that, leaning on that, and that was your foundation. The whole building leaned against that cornerstone. I don't know if you've ever seen a cornerstone before, but there's one actually on the Temple Mount that's really intriguing. I think, I think we have a picture of it. I want to bring it up if we can. That's, I know it doesn't look like it. That's me. Uh, my wife looks the same, but I don't. And uh, my hair was a little bit darker back then. But I don't want you to look at us. I want you to look at the stone behind us. That stone has been, was rejected. You can see they tried to corner it out. They tried to dig a channel in there. Ultimately, they just cast that, that huge stone aside. The temple is actually a little distance away up on a hill, and this is way down. They just thrown it down on the hill. Well, that was during the time of Solomon. And then you fast forward a number of centuries, and you get Herod the Great, and he builds what's called a temple mount. It's where it, it's surrounding the temple to raise the level so you have this flat platform where the temple's at. This is where you get the wailing wall and these huge blocks that, that surround the temple. Well, that entire temple mount is leaning against one stone. Guess which stone it is? It's that one right there. 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is sitting there talking, pointing down there at that stone, and they can all see it for themselves. You can take the picture down. Here's my point. Jesus is saying the very thing that humanity and leadership rejects will be something that will build a brand new building. And only those who choose to build themselves on that cornerstone will remain. That's actually the last verse, the meaning of it. It's a little bit confusing. He says, whoever falls on Jesus will be broken to pieces, or on the stone will be broken to pieces, but whomever the stone falls on will be crushed. Which actually, it sounds like they're both negative. Like, in the end, you get broken to pieces and crushed. Isn't that the same thing? But actually, I want to teach you it's different. There's a difference between falling on Jesus and Jesus falling on you. And there's also a difference between being broken to pieces and being crushed and pulverized. Here's the point I believe he's making by quoting that passage. He's saying one day there will come a moment when every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. One day everybody will know that Jesus Christ is king when he comes in his glory. And there will be people who will persist in rejecting him in that moment when he comes, Jesus will fall on them and they will be crushed. It's talking about end times. It's talking about the fact that you were either with Jesus or against him. That was the whole first point last week. He will crush those who choose to be his enemies. That's really important wording, who choose to be his enemies, because there is another choice. The other choice is to fall on the rock, to fall on Christ. Yeah, but you're going to be broken to pieces. Exactly. When you fall on Jesus... He breaks you to pieces. But let me tell you the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is a master at taking broken pieces and building a brand new building. But when he builds that brand new building, it is built upon the new cornerstone, who is Christ. Your whole life leans against Jesus, is supported by Jesus. You have a new foundation. You are a new building. This is exactly what the apostle Paul said. I want to end with this verse. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. He takes all the broken pieces, all your brokenness and your shame and your guilt. You fall on Jesus. You're broken before him. And he takes all those pieces and he says, let me show you. I can build a new temple. And I'll put my own spirit inside of this temple. And you become the very holder of God himself. That's the work that God does when you choose to fall on Jesus. Listen to what it said. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? You are not your own because you were bought at a price. Jesus Christ purchased us when he gave up his body and his blood on the cross. In that moment, paying the price, you guys belong to me, he says. That's why it says you are not your own. Listen, if you are not your own, then that means he's calling the shots, not you. It means I have to be on my bedside, kneeling there, trembling, saying, your way is better. You can do whatever you want to. Take as long as you need to. God, I hate it. It hurts, but I trust you. And if you're allowing me to endure this pain with so many people praying for me, with me crying out, I know you have purpose in it, and I trust you. That's what it means to say, this body is not my own. It belongs to him. Your life is not your own. It belongs to him. It was purchased by his own body and blood. So the question is, will you let him own everything? Will you say to him, you can do whatever you want to? I want you to do something. I want you all to stand up right now, if you will. 
just where you are, if you're physically able to, I want to encourage you to stand. Listen, if you're watching online and you're able to, I'd encourage you to stand as well. Here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Now, I know some of you people out there don't like being told what to do by a preacher on the stage, but listen, you don't have to, but it's going to bless you. I want to encourage you to put your hands like this, closed, in front of you. And, and here's, here's what I'm going to invite you to do in just a moment. I'm going to invite you to think, what are you holding back from God? Where are you trying to control? You're not letting him control. Is it a relationship? Is it like me? It's, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm afraid and I'm not giving you my fear. Is it is your finances? God is calling you to be generous to, to someone else, to the church, to a ministry, and you're holding back because you have other purposes for that money? Is there something God is calling you to do that, that you're saying, I, I'm, not, I'm not willing, I'm not ready, you're holding back? Is there something God is calling you to stop doing that you keep on doing and God is saying, would you release it to me? Is there, is there, is it a work thing that you're not trusting God in? Is it a child that you're idolizing? Is it, is it some other place that you're just holding on to? I want you to close your eyes for a moment if you would. Whatever that thing is, get it in your mind. Let the Spirit of God get it. We were praying for you to get this moment. I know what it is for me. i got to trust Him with my body. When you know what it is, I want to invite you just to open your hands to Him. Let it be a symbol that you're saying, God, I give you whatever this is. I'll make room for you to do whatever you want to. When I open my hands, you can take away whatever you want to. You can put in whatever you want to because your way is better. It's an act of faith. God, we trust you. Not because we always understand what, we do, what you're doing, but because we trust you. Do what you want to. In Jesus' name. Listen, before we finish up, I want to, we're going to sing one last song. And I, I want to give you, we're going to sing that song, Make Room, one more time. And it, I, I, don't you dare sing it without first saying, I give to you, to my, the best of my ability, whatever you want, to do whatever you want to do. But listen, if some of you, what you open to the Lord is a situation that's really hard, it's a health issue, it's a financial issue, it's a relationship issue, it's a work issue, it's a child issue, it's something, then the best thing you can do isn't just say, God, have it. It's to take prayer, take a moment to come down and say, Lord, we want to lay this before you because you're in charge and you can actually do something about this. In fact, I want to invite the prayer partners and staff to come forward now and give you an opportunity to respond. But there's one last thing I want to say, and I'm going to get out of the way. There are some of you that the most important thing you can give to God is your whole life. Maybe as I'm talking through this, you're realizing you've never given him full control. Going to church isn't enough. Liking Jesus isn't enough. There's a moment you say, I give you everything. I give you my whole life, body, soul, strength, mind, everything to do whatever you want to with me. Let me go ahead and tell you, the moment you give Jesus everything, there's a command he puts upon you. The word of God says this, repent and be baptized. Repent means I've tried to control my life and I've realized that's rebellion against you, God. I haven't given you control, so I repent, which means I turn and I give you control, Jesus. And God says, okay, I've now got control. I'm asking you to do the first step of obedience. Repent and be baptized. Let me tell you what that baptistry is up here. 
This is the first step of obedience to declare your faith in Jesus Christ. I know I've been praying for you. There are some of you in this room, and it has been weeks and months, maybe even years, that you know God has been calling you to come up here and to take this step of faith. And you keep saying, no, no, maybe later I'm not ready. I'm not good enough. i got to get some things figured out. Maybe when the family's here, maybe later. And you're not obeying the very first thing. Let me go ahead and tell you the truth. You cannot say God's in charge when the first thing he tells you to do, you say, no, thank you. For some of you, this step of obedience is going to be the first step to letting him really be in a charge, to be baptized. And that's a picture. When you go down into the water, that's you being broken to pieces. You're falling on Jesus. And when you come out of the water, that's you, a brand new building with Jesus as your cornerstone, a new creation, a new life, a fresh start. But you've got to be willing to come. If that's you, you come down, you let one of us know. What we do is we're going to take you over there. We're going to make sure you understand the gospel and you're ready for it. And if you are, we have a T-shirt you can change into and shorts you can put on. And before you leave the building today, you can declare your faith in Jesus Christ and obey him, the first step. So I invite you, if you need to come for prayer, you come. Or if you're ready to be obedient, to finally say, I'll let you call the shots. Whatever you ask me, I'll do it. You come, let us know. The baptistry is waiting. You respond as you need to.